You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you will hear from ICP leadership and police leaders across the globe, sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. Siege's policy is changing to meet modern challenges impacting American public safety entities like yours. Aided by the Advisory Policy Board, or APB, which is comprised of public safety executives from around the country, the CGIS division of the FBI has done its level best to improve CGIS policy intended to help protect all criminal justice data nationwide and beyond. Today, we present the third of at least six IACP-endorsed Ask the Expert podcasts that will cover one of five CGIS policy primary security control groups and their key subtopics from the first two series of revisions. Now, the purpose of our podcast is to present information regarding the CGIS policy, something that applies to all public safety personnel in a stimulating and value-adding way. Um, But the thing is, everyone has different needs. Will we succeed? As the FBI's Chris Weatherly likes to say, it depends. You know, an astute podcast listener once asked, is it possible to be bored to death? And the answer is, that that all depends upon the drill. Now, not, not to ruin a good joke, but all I can say is that our panel of experts today know the drill needed to add value and keep you as a listener thoroughly engaged. So let me introduce them to you. Um, with us today uh, from the athens Clark County Police Department in Georgia, Deputy Chief Keith Kelly, co-vice chair of the LEIT CGIS Policy Modernization Working Group, and an esteemed member of the FBI APB. Welcome to the podcast once again, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We also welcome back popular South Brunswick Police Department, New Jersey Sergeant George Vitt. Sergeant Vitt also serves on the board of the IACP Law Enforcement Technology Section. Welcome back, George. Thanks for having me again. Um, Today, we'd also like to welcome a new panelist. She is the Assistant I&T Director for the City of Charlotte, North Carolina, an LEIT board member and a friend of everyone here, Crystal Combs. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you for having me. Um, Welcome also to retired Homeland Security Investigations Supervisory Special Agent and subject matter expert in law enforcement data sharing, Mr. James W. Buckley, Jr., or as I like to call him, Jim. Good to have you aboard, Jim. Thanks for having me, Dave. Our next returning panelist is the CGIS Information Security Officer, or ISO, for the Kentucky State Police. Mrs. Erin Marie Oliver. Glad you could join us again, Erin. Thank you. It's good to be back. And once again, we're delighted to welcome a good friend of this working group, Chris Weatherly, a nearly 30-year veteran of FBI service, very personable FBI CGIS Division Information Security Officer. Chris, couldn't do this without you. Thank you, Chip. I appreciate it. Now, our esteemed colleague from the FBI answers hundreds of questions regarding CGIS policy. Sometimes the most reasonable answer is, it depends. Around here, we do like to have some fun with that answer, though. So, Chris, how do you how do you tell the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? Well, Ship, I think it would depend uh, on when you're going to see them, if it's a little later or after a while. <laughs> very, very good. Yes, I I can see how that would work. Our last panelist uh, we'd like to recognize is Chief Rick Scott. 
He's joining us from the San Luis Obispo Police Department in California and is the chair of the ICP LEIT technology section and a task team leader for our CGIS Policy Modernization Working Group. Rick, welcome aboard. Thank you, Ship. It's a pleasure to be with you and all the experts on the call today. Awesome. Well, um, then let's get right to it. Policy 5.6 IA-5 includes mandates for managing a wide array of system authenticators. Question, do you recommend that agencies just seek vendor solutions to managing multi-factor authentication? If so, why? And if not, why not? I think right now the, the best for most police departments without an extensive IT uh, department would be to utilize a vendor solution because that solution not only has to work for your systems, but they also have to work hand in glove with the CJA systems officer at the state level so that everything can be validated through the state switch. Yeah, I would agree with that, Jim. I mean, I think um, making sure that agencies have the appropriate expertise to implement these as painlessly as possible, right, for the agency and considering all the points of authentication being covered, I think it's always better to have um, expertise in that field, especially if you don't possess it at the agency level or even as a secondary uh, person or, or group that you can uh, validate some of these things with. I agree with Crystal. I think it you know, it depends on the capabilities um, as far as agency solutions versus vendor solutions about how this is accomplished based on the size and capabilities of your technical staff and their ability to implement and manage these systems. And Keith makes a great point. And I think basically the, you know, significant technological and human resources that go into developing these solutions, uh, we would look for an opportunity to outsource that and focus our resources on operations. Yeah, I think coming from a medium-sized agency, I kind of want to put that that responsibility, that onus on on the vendor to own that. Um, that way, I can concentrate on other you know responsibilities. I agree with the sergeant on that. That's something here in Kentucky. We ensure that agencies that are small in numbers um, have good contacts and good information where they can outsource their IT with people that actually have already worked with us that understand what the multi-factor authentication is and what they need on their devices uh, to be compliant with the standards. So we try to offer them a solution outside of their own agency where most of them don't have an in-house IT specifically to work on on their devices. So for me, that begs the question from a listener standpoint, of the authorized alternatives for multi-factor authentication, which are better and why? Ship, this is Chris. Uh, for, from from the, the policy perspective, um, you know, there are nine different types of authenticators that can be used within the, the CJ security policy that would make the agency compliant uh, and, and better protected from uh, someone, you know, becoming that unauthorized user, or actually in this case, an authorized user, if you will, because they have, they have assumed your identity. Um, one thing that we are that is uh, prevalent within the cybersecurity world today is phishing resistant authenticators. Uh, and while that's not yet a, a requirement within the CJ security policy, a phishing resistant uh, authenticator is something that has uh, zero uh, to minimum 
human interaction with it, right? So it's it's getting away from that, uh, you know, the user entering something into uh, an authentication chain before they become that uh, authorized user. So uh, right now, um, th that is not a requirement within the CJIS security policy. But if I had, if I was asked this question, which are better and why, those authenticators that are phishing resistant are better. And that's the reason why, because they do not have, they have zero to minimum um, actual user intervention uh, into those types of authenticators. I would also just say what would be better in a way to make it easier, streamline, and more cost effective would be utilizing one form, one solution. And I mean, that solution does everything from your desktop all the way down to your mobile device. The, you know, that's that's going to be your easiest and best way of doing it. So you could use it on a phone. You could use it on your desktop. You can use it on a laptop, a tablet. Whereas if you start getting into, well, we use PIV cards for our desktops and laptops, but then we need another solution because we can't plug in a card into our phone necessarily. That's where I'm I'm getting at is is I find it from being a former CSO and Endless Rep and everything, keeping it as simple as possible is the best for you. Okay, in that line then, uh, how will an agency prove compliance to an auditor regarding the credential service provider requirements? It would seem that your simplification may fit well in there. I would believe it would. And realistically, that's where the FBI audit team really has to come up with what out of it they're going to audit specifically um, because they may not audit it or they may audit, they will audit this but to what point will they audit it and that's what also has to be seen yet hey ship from a from a, the senior security policy point of view of this thing um you, uh, agencies may or may not use an external ser uh, credential service provider, right? They may use, as, as we said in an earlier conversation, they may use a vendor to provide them a solution, but that doesn't make that vendor an external credential service provider, right? Um, Where a credential service provider would come in was when we're outsourcing our identity and authentication entirely out to someone else, right? And if you do that, then we get into contractual requirements. You get into making sure the security addendum is attached to the contract. And that's how the agency would prove compliance uh, to an auditor that those, those credential service provider requirements are being met because we're holding that credential service provider, that external, external credential service provider, to the siege of security policy via that contract and, and the inclusion of the security addendum. Okay. Well, while I have I you, like I'm sorry. Oh, I would like to mention, and I, I think it's it's somewhat related, at least, you know, if we would say that mobile devices are the easiest way to do that multi-factor multi authentication, there's agencies that don't provide uh, mobile devices, cell phones to their to to their agencies, to their officers. And for those, you might run, uh, someone from a management perspective might run into resistance where an officer says, hey, you're not using my, my personal cell phone to push a, a, a multi-factor authentication towards me. And I think that's just something that, that management needs to be cognizant of where, and it is true, you don't have to do it through uh, a mobile device, but you know, when your patrol cars in the back lot and you have officers at the, their desktops and they're upstairs in their office, 
you can see from like a practical standpoint, is something to consider. So I think when when someone that's in charge of an agency has to kind of think about the whole landscape. So Chris, while I well, we got you handy, let's let's talk about then 5.6 I5. It's parentheses one C3. It specifically outlines the new rules for out-of-band authenticators and verifiers and to prevent methods that do not prove possession of a specific device, such as voice over internet protocol or VoIP or email. These shall not be used for out-of-band authentication. So if I can start with you, um, we'll talk maybe about the VoIP itself, but what are the cost and change points for agencies or could they be ex exclusively using a VoIP phone system and now cannot use the system for out-of-band authentication? Yes, Jeff, I think it, it, it bears um, some discussion here about exactly what is out-of-band authentication, right? So, and, and we get this question a lot. And th this, this one is really not a it depends answer. Uh, so uh, an out-of-band authenticator is something that if I'm using a criminal justice application, if I'm using an application to get to something that's going to give me access to criminal justice, that second factor of authentication cannot come within that primary channel or the same channel that I'm displaying the criminal justice application. It has to come via a secondary channel. It has to come outside of that communication channel. It can't come to the same app, so it has to come in a different fashion. Um, and as, when we speak about uh, those prohibited methods of delivering those authenticators, um, voice over IP, we can we can spoof the IP address, we can change the IP address, right? It doesn't show possession. And the same thing with email, uh, you know, the email could be intercepted. Um, and, and again, we're getting into that anti-phishing or that uh, phishing resistant uh, means of, of multi-factor authentication. So uh, starting in October of, of this year, 2024, um, those things that do not show possession, such as voice over IP, such as an email address or delivery the, of that one-time password to that email address, will become um, non-compliant with the with the CEDIA security policy. Now, when it comes to the costs and change points for those agencies, uh, you know, I, I would I would prefer that that some of our esteemed colleagues answer that. And, you know, that even if they're using those methods um, or how they're getting away from them. Looking at to 5.6 IA12, um, and we'll talk about identity proofing records and logs, um, the schedule of retention for these records. CSPs may be subject to specific retention policies in accordance with applicable laws, regulations, or policies, including any national archives and records information or NARA records retention schedules that may apply. So here's a question I think the whole panel will want to jump in on is, how would an agency or vendor for that matter build a CSP without the ability to know all of the external retention requirements? Um, sure, I'll, for, I'll take a, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, please, I'll, I'll take a first stab at that one. So, I mean, at a minimum, they need to meet CJIS requirements, right? So uh, being able to uh, share that with your vendor, certainly, right? These are our minimum requirements that must be met and then handle that via contract vehicle with the provider, right? So, and it's not just CJIS security policy as it is today, but also looking towards the future, right? Because one of the things that I want, really wanted to mention kind of on the previous one about the VoIP and the email piece is look for solutions that are going to future-proof you to a certain extent, right? I mean, 
the security landscape is going to be continuously changing. So we're going to be continuously kind of plugging those holes and new requirements will come up, but, um, but future proofing as much as possible. And then the other piece is really the onus is on the agencies to uh, research about local ordinances, state ordinances, any other requirements that need to be met and have those conversations to make sure that everyone is aligned on those things. I think Crystal makes a great point. And I think this also reinforces uh, law enforcement's, you know, uh, desire to partner with our vendors. You know, they want to bring to market solutions that work for us and that meet these requirements. So talk our early and talk often to come together and have these collaborations so that ready milk uh, built solutions can support our agencies to the agency and uh, CGIS requirements. I think that's the biggest key to this solution to a problem is actually communication. Um, I know in our state, it's really hard to get vendors to reach out to us. So we've been trying to reach out to some of them that we actually know to say, hey, this is the policy update. You know, if you're going to maintain access to this program through our state, you know, you're going to have to meet these you know, minimum requirements. Not only do you have to meet um, the siege of security policy requirements, but you have to re also um, reach our requirements for our own state because we have other requirements that go outside and a little bit stricter than some of the policies. And not every state is like that, but some are. So not every, you know, if a vendor services 30 states, 25 of those states may have a completely different set of rules that they have to abide by in order to be compliant in that state. So they can't just call up the next border and state and say, hey, I'm compliant in Georgia. That means I'm compliant in Kentucky. But that may not be the case or vice versa. They may, you know, call Chief Kelly and say, hey, you know, Aaron Oliver in Kentucky said I was compliant. But he's like, well, with her in her state, but you're not meeting our, you know, standards here. So I, I think that those communications, they have to understand, they have to reach out to each state level of where that resides at and, and get that information. Is, is, there, is there any possibility of the FBI providing compliant vendor products capable of meeting this mandate uh, to participating agencies? Yeah, Chip, that is something uh, that we have said continually. Uh, there is no such thing as a CGIS certified product, right? Um, because we just we we don't have the ability to do that. And uh, so, uh, short answer to that is: uh, is there any possibility? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. So, and I, I know we sometimes we repeat because it's necessary. Repetition is important to to catching all of these um, lessons that we're trying to learn. Um, what are the minimum compliance requirements then and auditable standards? Uh, so, Chip, as, as as you said, you know, we tend to repeat, but it bears repeating. The CGIS security policy, it is the minimum standards uh, for unescorted access to unencrypted CJI. So as long as you're meeting those minimum compliance standards and requirements within the CGIS security policy, that is what you'll be audited to. That is what you'll be expected to maintain. Uh, agencies could go above and beyond but that is the minimum compliance requirements. Okay. Um, well, I, I'll tell you, from my vantage point, it sure seems like you all do know the drill when it comes to these items, uh, and it certainly helps the folks that are listening in on this, these, these podcasts to understand some of the complexities. 
Today, you as a panel discussed 5.6 IA-5, talking about system authenticators, vendor solutions for multi-factor authentication, and credential service providers. And you also covered 5.6 IA-12, at least in portion three, ID proofing records and logs. Please let me extend my sincere thanks to all of you for your participation. Keith Kelly and Aaron Oliver, George Vitt, Rick Scott, Jim Buckley, Chris Weatherly, and Crystal Combs. Uh, we very, very much appreciate your participation uh, and attendance to the, the, the questions at hand. Listeners, please leave a review and questions, then join our next podcast, which should be really soon following this one, where the panel will include or continue to address the key updates in the identification and authorization control group portion of the CIA's policy. So until next time, as you slide down the banister of life, May the splinters never point in the wrong direction.